Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get us started because we have a very exciting speaker today and I don't want us to miss out on any um, time that we get to interact with her. I'm Hannah riley Bowles, co-director here at the um, Women in Public Policy Program uh, where we uh, promote research for understanding and addressing uh, gender inequality. And, um, and then part of the contribution of this seminar to our mission is connecting uh, cutting-edge scholars and leading thinkers um, with our community of scholars and students and um, uh, practice, leaders in practice. And so um, this is a particularly um, exciting uh, seminar in our series. I also want to highlight that the that there are we recording today? So this seminar, so we not only have the people in this seminar room, but this, the podcast from the seminar have actually been um, downloaded now tens of thousands of times. So we have a broader, we'll have a broader virtual um, community joining us, and um, consistent with you know seminar norms and keeping in mind that people are uh, tuning in from outside as well. We ask obviously that cell phones get turned off, and that um, when you ask a question, um, that it's actually a question and that it relates to the speaker. It's pretty straightforward seminar norm, I think. Um, so now I get to introduce our speaker today, who is uh, Professor Bina Arderwal. Um, from, uh, she's a professor of development economics and environment at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester in the, United, in, uh, in the UK. And prior to this, she was the director and a professor of economics at the Institute of Economic Growth at Delhi University, where she continues to be affiliated. And she was um, educated, she's educated both in the UK and in India. So this has been a long time um, uh, international global collaboration. And uh, I, 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 wanna, I can't go through, um, Professor Agarwal has 12 books and 84 academic papers, which I'm not even gonna attempt to summarize because we wanna hear from her. But I wanna highlight a little bit of her work. She has done very important work related to gender and inequality and its relationship um, to the, to the environment and environmental and sustainability questions. Perhaps her best known work is A Field of One's Own, Gender and Land Rights in South Asia, uh, which was awarded the AK um, Kumaraswamy Book Prize in 1996, the Edgar Graham Book Prize in 1996, and then also the K.H. Baheja uh, Award, um, again, in the same year. So um, this, is, this is a truly esteemed scholar and thought leader um, addressing very meaningful issues that are so mission relevant to the Kennedy School and central to our Women in Public Policy program. So please join me in welcoming. So I'm really delighted to be here. I've, uh, Harvard is, this Cambridge is familiar as with the other Cambridge where I studied. Um, and so um, it's really a pleasure to be in this wonderful BAP seminar series. And I thank Iris Bonet, fellow traveler, colleague, and friend, um, for this opportunity. Uh, Hannah Rose, uh, Hannah, uh, uh, as well, for uh, bringing me here. Um, and um, it's, it's an opportunity to present my ongoing work on roof farming in Asia and Europe. And I especially thank uh, Ruth Reyes for her amazing logistical support. She's totally, totally amazing. So um, let me start. 
in, uh, in large parts of the developing world, rural women remain embedded in the informal sector, especially in farming. In India, for instance, 93.5% of women workers are in the informal sector, and among rural workers, if we have data from 2011, 75% of women relative to 59% of men still depend mainly on agriculture. Yet efforts to economically empower women rarely focus on farming, the one occupation most of them are skilled in. Given this gap, two state-level experiments in India be began in the 2000s, early 2000s, stand out. Not only because they strove to enhance women's livelihoods within agriculture itself, but also because they strove to do so um, in a very innovative institutional form, namely group farming. Now these initiatives, one is in Kerala and the other in Telangana, encourage rural, rural women to lease in land collectively, pool their labor and capital, and to cultivate jointly. Now the initiatives are innovative, not only in promoting group farming, but especially in recognizing women as farmers outside the domain of family farms, <coughs> under which most cultivation is done globally, and in which women typically remain um, unpaid workers with limited autonomy. Now this recognition is also important because at least 35% of agricultural workers in India are women, and their proportions are likely to grow. You see, in fact, globally, uh, feminization of agriculture. Because more men than women tend to seek non-farm jobs. So one could argue that the welfare of rural families and the country's agricultural growth could depend in notable extent on the performance of women farmers. Women's ability to deliver on production, however, is severely curtailed by limited access to land, capital, irrigation, credit, technology, and other essentials. They also have limited bargaining power with the state and with markets. So the question then is, uh, could group farming help women overcome their resource constraints? Could it enhance their economic well-being? Indeed, one might be more ambitious and ask, could they outperform individual small farms, which are typically male-managed? And could group farming also empower women socially and politically? Now, to date, barring my own recent research, there has been very little systematic empirical analysis of group farming in India or in developing countries more generally, nor have the particular questions that I pose received attention. So to, if you ask unusual questions, you can't go to standard data sets. So I undertook two primary surveys in both states during 2012 to 14 for a sample of group and individual farms. And in particular, what I examined was if women's group farms can do better than individual family farms in productivity and profits. Now, what is cooperation in farming? Cooperation in farming, in fact, um, can have a range from you can have single purpose, single purpose minimal, I don't think there's a laser here, a single purpose minimal cooperation to multi-purpose to what I call fully integrated. Now, globally, single-purpose marketing cooperatives are the most common, especially in the dairy industry. You'll find it all over Europe, and in India, the Amul Cooperative is a case in point. In between, one could think of multi-purpose cooperations, such as purchasing equipment together or crop planning. But none of these involve cooperation in production. Collective farming goes much beyond these. 
because what it involves is joint production with the pooling of land and labor and intense cooperation on a daily basis. Now, given that 84% of farmers across 111 countries cultivate under two hectares, such integration could potentially provide an alternative, more viable model of farming. But is the idea of group farming new? No. In fact, what you have is what I call waves of farm collectives. Now, the best known, the most famous, or the infamous, if you like, are the socialist collectives, 1920s to 50s, which were formed with forced collectivization of peasant farms. And this, we know today, had seriously negative effects on output and welfare. The second wave was in the 1960s. And these were farm cooperatives which were promoted, again, mostly top-down in post-colonial countries. In Asia, Latin America, Africa, you find that during that period, many countries became independent and agrarian reform programs were launched. And they tried group farming. But they were largely failed and they had mixed effects. The third example which will surprise is maybe some surprises a lot of people uh, in uh, one of the 1960s examples is in France, which I'm also studying, and in Norway. And then in the 1990s, what you find is after decollectivization, post-socialist countries, when, um, when people were given little slivers of land, they pooled that land to make the farms viable. And there's, there's research on that to overcome land and machine scarcity. The, um, this, this happened in, in East Germany, in Romania, in Kyrgyzstan. Um, in, uh, <clears throat> in Nicaragua and other countries. But the farm collectives of my study in India are quite different from all of these. They are voluntary consti voluntarily constituted, egalitarian, and managed entirely by women. Also, they are a collective of individuals and not a collective of family farms, which was the case here, for instance. <coughs> now, conceptually, one could argue that group farming, uh, if you pool your resources and do joint cultivation, it could bring a number of economic benefits to small farmers in general and especially to women farmers. So for instance, group farming could enlarge um, farm size because you pool in your own land and lease in land. And this could increase the economic viability and could help brief economies of scale. Now there's been, there's been assessments, for instance, by Andrew, Andrew Foster and Mark Rosenweig who show that an increase in farm size from very small farms up to 10 hectares uh, significantly increases per hectare profits. Also, groups can help you save on hired labor. They can bring a larger pool of uh, resources and funds to purchase inputs. You can tap on a diversity of skills than, than is found in one person or family. You can also experiment with riskier, higher value crops with higher payoffs. You can spread losses among a larger number. You could better deliver on contracts. And you could raise bargaining power with governments and markets. Now, you might argue that all these, exam all these advantages could occur irrespective of whether it's women or men. But for women farmers, these are much larger, given the nature of constraints that, that are embedded structurally. And also, women face social restrictions on public interactions in many countries because of social norms. And forming groups could provide them abilities to, to overcome those, to have autonomy in 
production decisions, potential control over output, and most importantly, an identity as a farmer. Now, this is seldom possible in male-managed managed family farms, where women's contributions are often invisible. Now, you might say, well, group farms can be, um, uh, can be constituted by leasing in land or pooling the members' own land, or a mix of both. But since rather few women in developing countries own land, and there's a huge literature on that, they may have few alternatives than the land lease model, and that has its own constraints. And then one might ask, does economic empowerment in turn lead to social and political empowerment? Um, there's, a, there's a chair here, Richard. But first, uh, let's consider the economic <coughs> effects. Now, prior to mine, there are two sets of studies. Both of them are linked to socialist countries, which examine the question of group versus individual family farms and productivity effects. First was in the 1980s and 90s, when you had a, a number of studies which compared smallholders with various types of state-promoted large collective farms. And they typically used regional level data rather than farm level data. Uh, and they got mixed results. Because what you found was some studies found lower outputs with collective farms, some found higher outputs, and some found uh, others had depending on context. The second set of studies was the 2000s post-socialist countries, where these used farm level data. And there were about four or five studies only. And they found that group farms had higher returns than individual family. But remember, this was this involved pooling of family at the level of the family and not at the level of individuals. My India, yes. Can I just ask a question about these two sets? Um, so, how are these groups formed? So, one is of course gender difference, but are they do they self-select to be part of it, or does the government, even socialist countries, kind of say you five are now or you hundred are collective? Well, the set one is really comparing uh, collectivized farms. And with after the after collectivization, so these collectivization in in Russia and various other countries was forced, right. and most peasants. Right. Um, I mean, I'm thinking that. that might also be interesting. Okay. A so, big difference to what you're doing, because these are probably in your study maybe they're yeah. self-selected. Well, uh, there is a degree of self-selection, but we don't know to what proportion. Um, in this set, is really post-socialist. So um, what you find is that a range of institutional arrangements emerged. Some of them pooled their land and labor, uh, and especially they found machine shortages. Uh, and the others may have stayed back in some form of collective, state collectives as well. Um, so there's work by Rachel Sabatis Wheeler at IDS and, uh, and uh, Michael Childress and a number of others um, on that. Um, I don't think we have a whole census of what proportions did it, but it's possible. I have to revisit this. Now, <clears throat> uh, in my examples, um, as I said, um, are in Kerala and Telangana, alike the post-socialists in that they pool resources to overcome scarcities. But they're distinct in being constituted only of women as members in their own capacity. And their origins are not located in socialist models, but in models of women's collectives. I believe this is the first study of the economic effects of these farm collectives, and the paper I based on this recently came out in World Development. Uh, you had a, had a question there? Yeah. Um, I was wondering if um, the same way, like in the 60s in France, uh, people were adopting different types of technologies for farming, especially 
the uh, increase in organic farming uh, took place in these groups. If you, if you observe uh, different types of technologies or different types of techniques that could exist in this uh, collective. So uh, why don't I answer that on the basis of my data? Because at the moment, I'm just telling you about this. And I, we can talk about France during the Q&A. Um, because that's still working. So uh, most of you know where Kerala and Telangana are, but just in case you don't, so here is Kerala, um, and this is an Andhra Pradesh, and there's now it's split into two, two states. Uh, now these group farms in these two states were promoted in the 2000 to empower women economically and socially. Now the basic model was of women leasing land, pooling capital and labor, and sharing costs and benefits. And they could also work on their family farms alongside. But class rotation allowed them a degree of flexibility to take up wage work in some seasons. Now, this is important to understand that the genesis and structure. So in Kerala, the idea of group farming actually came from village women who had experimented with leasing land in groups. But the larger program was crafted by senior government officials and intellectuals, large, predominantly males. And it was structured around the self-help group model. Um, are you familiar with the self-help group model, which is a bit like the microcredit um, gramming model, but not exactly. Um, and that was modified in Kerala to constitute what they call village-level um, neighborhood groups. And these are saving income credit groups. This whole program was then located within a multi-level structure of governance, which I call as having three pillars. So one pillar was the state's poverty, state poverty eradication program, the Kudum Shri Mission. I just call it K Mission. The second pillar, and this is the most innovative part, was a community network which was created as an autonomous registered body with elected um, office bearers, constituted of the uh, neighborhood groups at the bottom tier and the community development societies at the top tier. And these societies, um, which were at the at the village council level, were, had because they were autonomously registered, had negotiating power with the local government. And the third pillar were the village councils, which in Kerala, if one might remember, uh, it can sometimes cover several villages. Um, now, the group firms are constituted of women who are prior members of the neighborhood groups, the saving credit groups. So while not all um, NHG uh, members take up group farming, so there's a degree, some degree of self-selection there, but on important variables such as primary schooling, economic status, credit access, there is virtually no systematic difference between those uh, of the women who take up group farming and those who don't. Now the group farms can get subsidized um, credit um, under what is called the Joint Liability Group Scheme of the Agricultural Development Bank. Now this is important because they don't need to have collateral for getting credit. Now these group farms receive support from the, from the Autonomous K Mission. Uh, they get some startup capital, they get technical information and training from experts, and they have, there are some crop-specific incentives. And 10% of the village council budget in Kerala is for women, although not necessarily for group farming. So all this, what this does is it creates a somewhat level playing field for women relative to men, but not fully. In 2016, there were 62,000 such farms across Kerala, so about 3 lakh women. And I did a rough calculation. They constituted between 9 to 10% of all farms in Kerala. So that's quite a large proportion. 
the second stage is Telangana, and, uh, and um, here the group farming was launched in 2001 under UNDP and Government of India initiative for a, with a five-year framework of support. It was implemented by a quasi-NGO, the Andhra Pradesh Mahila Samta Society, a APMSS, and this society was really formed in 1993, not for economic purpose, but to empower women for education. They, what APMSS did was it set up women's collectives, one per village, federated at the district level. And these pre-existing collectives took up group farming in 500 villages. Now typically all Sangha members in the project villages joined, so there was very little self-selection. Each group, as in Kerala, got a seed grant, it got some implements, some training, but government support was limited, was limited through the project and then it disappeared after five years. In 2005, then the UNDP funded ended. What was very interesting was that when I first visited Telangana, then in Andhra Pradesh, in 2011, 50% of these groups had continued to farm despite the fact that the, the project funding had ended. It was open, overseen by APMSS. So what I wanted to compare was group farms in each state with small individual farms. I've already told you this. Um, of two hectares or less in the same state. And the question was, are group farms more productive and profitable than small individual family farms? As we might expect conceptually. Yes, Bill Gates. Why don't, why don't I come back? That's the question I will, that's the question I will answer, so why don't you hold on to it and I'll answer it. Um, so the data I collected uh, during 2012-13 and gap filled in 2013-14 was in two districts of Kerala and three districts of Telangana. In Kerala, the two districts, um, those who are familiar, were Alapuza and Tishur. Alapuza is a district which is dominated by crop, food crops, particularly paddy. And Tishur is dominated by commercial cultivation of banana. And both districts, they grow vegetables. And this, I proactively chose these two districts in order to also provide us some sense of subsist relatively subsistence crop versus a commercial crop. My Kerala sample consists of 250 farms, um, uh, 69 all-women groups, and 181 individual family farms. The individual farms uh, are the family farms of the women members, but selected randomly from among them. In Telangana, there are three districts. Uh, this is a relatively semi-arid area. Um, uh, you end up with, there were 770 farms, and there were some which uh, didn't complete the survey. So 763 farms in three districts, and I ended up with a sample of 70 group farms and 693 individual farms. Now, these individual farms are of two types in Telangana. One is non-group members who are cultivating five acres or less, and they were selected on the base randomly on the basis of a census of every village. And then you have women's family farms, uh, which are um, women members, again, from among them, randomly selected. There are two, two types here. Now, 
In both states, this is important, 95% of the individual family farms in the sample are male managed. So essentially what you're really comparing is all women groups leasing in land versus male managed farms. The data I collect was in, in, the, in, this, in this survey was collected for weekly data for every input and output for each crop and plot used by the farms for an entire year. If you were to ask me, don't do it ever <laughs> again. In addition, I uh, did focus group uh, discussions to get the history, to get farm characteristics and farmer characteristics. Uh, and then I interviewed all the major figures um, in the two states who had actually established this to understand the kinds of ideas it brought it about. Now, there are some uh, important differences um, in the Kerala and, uh, and Telangana um, uh, farms. Kerala's farms have an average of six members, each farm. The women are all literate. Two-thirds have completed secondary school and above, and 9% um, are, uh, only 9% are 60 years or over. What is very important is that these groups are heterogeneous across caste and religious um, uh, lines and poor and less poor households. 80% are Hindus, uh, as you can see, but most belong to other backward castes, and a fair proportion are Christians. Now you might ask, uh, why heterogeneity? Because the, uh, uh, it goes against the common assumption made by uh, NGOs and by early collective action theory that homogeneity helps cooperation. But it was proactively promoted for several reasons. Firstly, to root the groups in neighborhoods which are themselves heterogeneous and diverse. Secondly, to what they call ensure leadership. So the, the logic of the K-mission was that local women's leadership does not come from the poorest, but those who are just above the poverty line. Moreover, as I found, heterogeneity also provides a wider base of social capital and social networks for accessing land. So you'll say, well, what about divides, caste divides? Where they, they dealt with that by rotating weekly meetings in each woman's house, uh, where tea was served, and, um, and that was a method of trying to get them to overcome their uh, own mental restrictions around caste. The Telangana groups are much larger, 22 members on average. Some had 54 members. Remember, this was the original Sanghas who were then onto which the fruit farming project was drafted. Most are scheduled caste Hindus. 38% are illiterate, and 17% are uh, about uh, 60 years and above. But uh, notably, uh, they are still uh, more literate. The degree of illiteracy is less than in the individual family farms. Um, all the groups, uh, the group farms, um, now, all of them come from small landholding families in both states. Um, now, what's important is that in Kerala, in particular, people cultivate little slivers of land, very small plots. And, and, and therefore, in both states, you find that the group farms are at least twice or more uh, in size than the individual family farms in both cases, in Kerala as well as in, as well as in Telangana. All of them lease in land, mostly from outside the group, on a cash rent basis. Individual farmers, by contrast, own the land that they cultivate. 
either wholly or at least partly. This is pretty important because you're comparing a land lease model with insecurity of tenure with a model where the men own the land that they cultivate, at least in part. Yes. Can I just understand? So if the group farms are more or less twice the size, or a little bit more actually, I guess, of the, are they pooling smaller slices than the individual? Like, is that an indication that you've got people with less land access? Is there, is there um, If you're pooling land and you're not depending only on what you own, then you have the possibility of leasing from several, you know, within the group and yeah. from outside the group. And that's one of the advantages of being able to um, be a group, which is that you can en enhance your, your concept. I'm just doing this really simple math. So let's say there's um, five people with less material resources. They each have two units or whatever, wherever they are. Yeah. Okay. And, and then, then, and then, there, whereas the individual farms each have, on average, five units. Do you know what I mean? Or, and then, therefore, the group farms come up with ten, but actually, the individual contributors are less wealthy than the individual farm. I mean, this, or is that that's not relevant? Well, there are two things. To what's relevant is that um, the, they are leasing in entirely. Okay. Um, and these these uh, these are individual farms which are owning. Now, um, in terms of number of fragments, if you like, yeah. number of plots. Um, Except in one or two cases where there are like six plots, they usually have two, two plots or maybe three, often one plot, and that's part of the part of what they would like is a consolidated plot because the huge transaction costs moving from plot to plot uh, and so on. So that's what they and and I'm coming to that is really so here. What's also interesting is in Kerala, they are leasing from non-group landlords, and okay. here the Telangana women are leasing predominantly from within the group. So if you have a group of, let's say, 22, if two of them have bits of land, and why is it the case, because it limits them, is, is because it's very difficult to lease in land, and particularly difficult for the Telangana groups. So land leasing is really, land access is the biggest hurdle, especially in Telangana, because here the uh, groups are constituted of scheduled caste women. And if you think of scheduled caste communities, they are themselves disadvantaged. So if they depend on their own community for leasing in land, um, they, they have limited access. So here's a citation from one of the women, women's group in Medak district in Telangana. They say, the landlords in the village think that since all our members belong to the scheduled caste community, if they lease to us, we will get the land title in the group's name. So none are prepared to lease land to us. In the Kerala context, the heterogeneity actually therefore helps because they can then draw upon their social networks to lease in land from across caste groups. And so it increases your, your access. Is that yeah, yeah, that's what I was trying to So they're disadvantaged not only by virtue of gender, but also also, the, also economically, socially. That, that's, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, caste, yeah, but there's also the lease model. That they don't own that land. they don't own it on right. top of that. Yeah, on top of yeah. that. Which would be associated actually, with those other forms of disability. Which is associated with gender. Yeah, with gender. Gender directly. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. In both states, they have oral leases. They lack proof that they are farmers. This has to do with the tenancy laws in the country. That if you um, if you have fixed leases, then the tenant establishes rights over two in two or three years, and that means if you can't prove you're a farmer, you can't actually get access to subsidies. So. What I'm trying to show is that there are several disadvantages that the women's group farms have, dependence on lease land, 
and uh, insecurity of tenure. The second is oral leases. The third is structurally embedded gender bias and access to land inputs, extension services, and markets. Extension services will talk to your husband, even if he's doing carpentry, uh, rather than to you. Um, I mean, that's a well-established, and there's a lot of work on that, FAO, World Bank, and so on, and uh, mine and others. And then this is something that we don't think about, is that these women have not had prior experience in farm management. So if your husband is managing the farm, then he's <coughs> negotiating with markets on a variety of counts. So be to become farm managers with very little experience is itself also a standing disadvantage. Yeah, Dilgit? So in the leasing, did they end up paying interest on that lease? Or yes. did it completely subsidize? No, no, nobody subsidizes them. No so subsidy. it's all cash cash leases. Um, predominantly, there's a few, few uh, sharecropping in the case of Kerala. Uh, there are different mechanisms. It'll take me a bit of time. Why don't I come back to that? But uh, they, um, in, if you lease from within the group, then they can lease below market rent. But if you lease from the landlords, they have to pay market rent. I see. So and, and nobody helps them. It's very high probably. It's not very high, but not it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's what, uh, and it, you know, the male farmers would also the encounter. What's the, uh, the difference, I mean, I have the data, but I don't have it like, right now. Mm -hmm. But it's a good question. Um, importantly, most were housewives or workers on family farms before they became farmers. Um, now, some of these disadvantages can be overcome with state support. So, so for instance, uh, some of this with incentives. Um, and the groups, of course, uh, but not all of them. And the, and the groups deal with collective action problems in a variety of ways. They, somebody not turning up for work, they have replacement labor, fines, um, and, and so on. Now, despite uh, these challenges, how did the women's collectives perform vis-a-vis -vis largely male-managed individual family farms? Now, I mean, I'll just run this. I won't spend time on this. It's, it's a basic model. Um, so you have... Um, uh, y is the value of output, and then I look at farm types, uh, inputs of various kinds, irrigation, cropping pattern, and demographic variables, I and then district done. So I control for that. And here are some, so how did they perform? Well, Kerala did strikingly well in most, okay, yes. Uh, I'm just wondering, who owned the land? They told people or the? Uh, So, uh, technically, you can. Some women do own land, but given the general bias in inheritance, um, uh, not in the law, but in practice, uh, rather small proportions of women own land. But it's, it's all individuals, not the state. So first, let me share some cross tabs because there's a striking figure. So Kerala does particularly well, Telangana less so. Um, so if you, so here's the value of output per hectare, taking all crops over the year, and then I have, and then I have crop specific. So this is the value of output for group farms and then the individual farms. And as you can see, that's a difference. That is, it's 1.8 times average value of output per hectare in the group farms relative to the individual farms. Also what's striking is in a major commercial crop like banana, they do extremely well. And their 
um, average value per hectare is 1.6 times that of individual plants. In paddy, however, although it's not the T value is not significant, they do less well. And I think this is an important thing to think about, which I'll come back to. So if you look at the regressions, basically I just, this is just reiterating that the farm type, uh, it's individual farm is one, uh, group farms are, are uh, zero, uh, and therefore you can see that it is significant um, in terms of, uh, so if you, if you actually calculate what would a shift from individual to group farms is likely to be associated with an increase in annual output by 30%. In banana, a shift from individual to group farms is, is associated with an increase in output of 348%, 348%. Now this banana story is both interesting and important because although all farmers, group or individual, men or women, try and fine tune their harvest and sales, to take advantage of high prices during festival seasons. But the women's groups are able to work the market especially well. Some have negotiated contracts with local temples for special banana varieties. And as a group, they are able to ensure delivery much better than small individual farms. Now in both annual um, value of output and banana yields, the most important input driving output is, is labor. So uh, in the first case, a 1% increase in labor per hectare is associated with a, with a 0.57 um, uh, uh, increase in, 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 in output. Uh, so you have a positive both farm size productivity relationship and a positive labor, which you, you would expect. But I think the farm size productivity relationship is important. Um, now let's look at Telangana. Now you might ask, well, why is it that the groups perform less well? I'll come back to this in Paddy. And an important reason is that uh, they are unable to lease good quality paddy land because farmers who own the particular kind of paddy land that is needed for high yields, they self-cultivate and refuse to lease out. Telangana, so in Telangana, however, we get the opposite. We find group farms in annual value of output perform much worse than individual farms. If you take all crops together, and if you take food grains. Interestingly though, if you look at cotton, they don't do so badly. In fact, group farms do rather well. And what is also important to recognize is that the, the COSA NGO, APMSS, encouraged the women to concentrate particularly on food grains with the idea that if you grow your own food, you're going to have better food security. I think there's, a, there's a just a general understanding. Whereas in a semi-arid area with less irrigation, in fact, it's much better if you're doing commercial cotton cultivation, for instance. And if you, so if you, here's my regressions, which show the same thing. I can come back to it if anybody wants to see this again. And then you have the crop specific ones, where you, where you can see that for cotton, it's not significant, but for food grains, the group farms do worse than individual family farms. So basically, three points stand out with the productivity results. First, overall, Kerala's group farms do substantially better than its individual farms, while Telangana's do much worse than individual farms. Secondly, in both states, women's groups do much better when growing commercial crops like banana in Kerala, cotton in Telangana, than traditional food grains where land quality and experience matter more. 
And then we have the positive land productivity and labor productivity relationships, which underlie the advantage groups in general enjoy over individual farms by pooling land and labor, because it increases farm size and it helps you overcome seasonal labor shortages. Then we come to profits. And basically, the way I've calculated it, net returns, is by deducting all paid out costs from the total value of output, but without imputing values to own land or family labor. In Kerala, most farms have a positive net returns, but for group farms, the average net returns for farms are strikingly higher, as you can see, uh, than individual farms. And these are significantly um, statistically significant after we control for fixed effects for districts. In fact, the mean net return, as you can see, 1,21,000 for groups is five times higher than the 23,500, roughly, of in small individual farms. And it's three times higher than the state's average for that year, which is 45,000. A question of clarification, what do we have to think about the five times higher return also, as in, now I have to divide this by my yes. five women. Yes. yes. So, so you can divide both. You have an average family of five. Let's yep. say in Kerala, husband, wife, three children. That yep. would be, uh, and you divide it by the same, because the average group size is five to six. Yeah. But do the women also have families to feed or children? Uh, they they have families to feed, but they're not dependent only on this. Okay. So the husbands have have their own uh, okay. livelihood sources. Yes. That's right. What's also interesting is 38% of Kerala's farms earn over 50,000 net returns, which is 38% earn higher than the state average for all farms. And so what these results demonstrate for Kerala is that despite difficulties in leasing land, women's group farms are notably can outperform individual um, male farmers in small-scale commercial farming. But as Kerala performs poorly, as we know, what is Telangana, what is interesting in Telangana is that despite doing poorly productively, they make up the difference in net returns. So there is, for instance, this is not uh, significant. And the reason is that they save hugely on higher labor. 40% of the total cost of production there is on higher labor. And individual family farms pay a huge amount on higher labor. So why does Kerala do so well and Telangana not? Well, several factors are likely to be. Uh, first is, I, you know, there is no real logic to you can't actually attribute what proportion, but you get a sense. I think state support and institutional structure are absolutely key. This continuing state support. Remember, these were often housewives or non-managerial roles, and so technical uh, training for them as farmers and training for them as master farmers and so on was extremely important, something that is ignored by normally, normally by government services. In the Telangana case, this only lasted for five years. It was sporadic, scatty, and not very well done. The second is the three-pillar structure in Kerala. By creating an autonomous pillar of the women's um, uh, neighborhood groups at the bottom and the community development societies in the top tier, what you create is a, bar a bargaining pillar, if you like, which can bargain with the village council on the one hand and with the state for its services on the other. And I think that there was a, that's one of the most innovative things I've seen in terms of um, institutional structures. Then you get subsidized credit for groups via NABAD. 
Now, NABAD is, uh, was set up for this purpose, and it introduced a scheme by which if anybody, women or men, formed a joint liability group, they could then get credit linkages um, uh, for without collateral. What is interesting is it's an all-India scheme, but the Kerala groups were able to tap into it much more, less in Telangana, because the scheme was introduced later than after the UNDP project ended. The second factor, I think, group composition is something that we need to <coughs> talk about in collective action theory, that social composition, Kerala went against the grain by having heterogeneous groups. The women are younger, educated, and have wide social networks. The Lingana's groups are largely scheduled caste, poor women, with limited social base, and men are illiterate. The third is, um, linked to composition is group size. So Kerala's farms are small, Average is six, anything between four and 10. It enables high per capita returns, the point you raised, Iris, and easier coordination. The Lingana's groups are 22 on average. So even if you rotate average, one, some farms have 50. <coughs> uh, so I think that's, there's an issue here. Then one needs to look at production conditions. So cropping patterns. We need to move away from this idea that women are the food securers of the family, that you have to grow your own food grains to have food security. Um, they are as good at making profits, and in fact, if you have commercial farming with market demand, then they're likely to, more likely to succeed. Local ecology matters. This is something which is not Telangana's fault. Um, it's semi-arid, unirrigated, and uh, Kerala has high rainfall, it has irrigation. So the difference between uh, family farms and roof farms on that count is less. And then, of course, the obstacles to land access. And finally, I put in this about conceptualization. The groups in Telangana were conceptualized as social empowerment groups in which large numbers might matter. You want to empower the poorest and the most disadvantaged. And the economic program was then added on. In Kerala, it's the opposite. It was conceptualized as an economic program with social empowerment um, to emerge uh, from that. Nevertheless, one could say that in both states, uh, catalyzed by external interventions, it has provided women farmers with an important alternative to unpaid workers on family farms. A little more to go. Um, something which is not captured in statistics, so you need qualitative data, capability enhancement. The first is that it's established strong identities as farmers rather than as farm types. And there are lots of quotes, but here's one, that group farming has enriched my farming experience. Through the group, I realized that I have good leadership qualities and could also manage the technical aspects of farming. Other group members now listen to me carefully. It's familiarized women with a wide range of public institutions and services, something their husbands or sons may have dealt with. So they say clearly before joining the group, we had no contacts with bank officers, agricultural officers, government officials. After registering as a group, we, start, we started a bank account, training classes, and have developed a good rapport with these officials. And they've learned to negotiate in multiple markets. There's land markets, so they understand, get to know the quality of land, the levels of leases. In input markets, they are in terms of prices. And very interestingly, in the case of Telangana, they have been able to negotiate market yards. So if, you're, if, you have, if, you, if you have a crop like cotton, 
then you have to actually store it because you cultivate, you harvest it over a period of time. And what they managed to do is that earlier they were, they are now very visible where they were invisible in market yards, negotiating with buyers and for physical space. I don't know if you, how many of you read Far From the Madding Crowd? Some of you have? It's a young woman farmer in southern England who inherited her uncle's farm and the first time she goes into the corn exchange, every single eye is on her because there are only men there and she was the first woman to enter. So some of these. Anyway, most importantly, they've learned to make production decisions and manage the farm. Now very quickly, this um, social empowerment, the variety, I won't read all this out, but there's a caste question which we find in, in many cases that the, this idea that we, were, we, we didn't have our own identity, our nicknames, and now we are not asked to sit on the floor and we are given respect. Now this is a big deal for scheduled caste women. Then the question of gender, that everybody said women couldn't work, but we proved them wrong. We were early, early daily wage workers, and now we are farming, so they actually feel they are farmers. The question of identity, and this is very interesting. You know, we think of Kerala, all these educated women, and so on, and yet many of them, as the labor force participation rates also shows, that I was just a housewife before joining the group. Nobody knew me by my own name. Everybody used to call me by my husband's name and the situation has changed. Okay. I must um, also mention that um, many of these women have stood for local elections and won. And in fact, in Kerala, every party now wants Gudum um, Shri women on, on, as candidates. Um, so I don't have time to go into that uh, very much. So uh, broad, broad reflections, what are the lessons of I think we have lessons of what we should do and what we should not do. So the first is state commitment and governance, administrative, institutional, technical, financial, which we find was embedded in the Kerala model, but not in the Telangana one. The question of group autonomy, the issue of heterogeneity and farm size, which um, group size, which I've already mentioned, commercial cropping with good local markets, and doing something about land access. Now land access, of course, is a very complicated issue because if you have a land lease model, then we need tenancy reform. And this is a big issue in India and in South Asia. Um, the question is, are you able to, um, what do you do about it? Um, can we promote women being able to buy land? And what's very interesting is that some of the groups who were doing commercial farming in Kerala actually pulled their profits to buy land in some cases. But it's not generalizable because, you know, there has to be state support. And there's an example in, in Andhra Pradesh in the 1990s where the government was giving, uh, having a loan come grant scheme where if scheduled caste women, if they formed a group, they could jointly buy land. Uh, and they had 50% was a loan, but 50% was a grant. And the loan was repayable in 20 years. So, so there are examples of that. Also very interestingly in Kerala, men's groups have started to emerge. So I specifically asked, look, are there men's groups? We found some. Uh, not enough in number to make a comparison, but perhaps now in seeing that the women are doing well, um, there could be a potential for replicability among men as well. And I'll end with this last slide um, with some thoughts, broader reflections. Um, that institutional innovations can prove key to economic gains. 
that farm collectives can reduce the effect of state failure and market failure, which economists constantly talk about, for the disadvantaged. Groups alone cannot overcome major gender disadvantages. They can alleviate them, they can reduce them, but I think the most important is the access to land ownership. And finally, and this is something I'm working on, that collective action theory um, needs to be worked on because we know that there's a huge amount of work that was done on protecting the commons, Ellen Ostrom's work, my work, and other people's work. Um, but when you're looking at different levels of cooperation and you're talking about private property, um, uh, then uh, the, the same principles of what works in protecting the commons are not likely to be identical. So there's, there's scope here. So, so thank you. Whatever is your preference, yeah. yeah so take a couple questions, then yeah. we can have a conversation. Yeah. That sounds lovely. Any other? Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Um, so I'm really interested in if you can say a little bit more about the existing tenure arrangements that were in place in these different regions before uh, these group farms, and whether or not this matters. Do you think in terms of how groups are able to collectively ask for land, or the, or the fundamental social systems of leasing land? Community Development Society. Yeah, yes, yeah, so I didn't get a sense. You talked about the state and the group farms, but what was happening through those okay. community units? And the bigger question is, um, as you and I had talked um, the other evening, is that part of this is a bigger question of is there an alternative between big commercial farms and small whole farmer in collective farming? So, you know, just sitting back, is this experience beginning to gain traction in discussions on um, smallholder versus big commercial as sort of an alternative. Shall I, shall I? That's a lot. Yeah, go. Start <laughs> so this is a big debate. Uh, the debate is um, that you have, remember the figure I gave you, 84% of farms across 111 countries um, are, are cultivating uh, farms with uh, two hectares or less. So it's not just India or Bangladesh or Pakistan, you know, South Asia. It's really much more global. Some parts of Europe as well. Um, so the debate is that these farms are so small, they're non-viable. They don't have much political clout. And these guys should just leave um, and, and find jobs elsewhere because it's not efficient. And in another paper that I had, uh, where I looked at an all-India survey of 50,000 farmers, 
they were asked a question, do you like farming? And 40% said they don't. Women were much more likely to say they don't like farming. Understandably, nobody had asked them before. Um, so, so people will say, okay, they don't like farming. Why don't they just go elsewhere? And we'll organize them into large commercial farms. That's particularly pushing the African context. Paul Collier's work, for instance, in the African land. The question is twofold. So is there a middle? Because there are no jobs for large numbers of people to leave small-scale farming, or small holders, to go to urban areas. There's a lot of work on poverty, as you would know, where people are saying, what the if you're going to move people from villages to large cities, you'll just create poverty. What you need is a missing middle, people who are able to really rejuvenate agriculture and perhaps do some non-farm jobs. So many of these uh, families, we looked at individuals, so their families are not all in farming, especially in Kerala. They have other, other occupations. So I think, uh, Marty, the thing is, so, so my take from this would be that you need alternatives and you need cooperative forms of alternatives. And the negative response that we have on collectives, farm collectives, goes back to our thinking on socialist collectives, which had disastrous effects, or it goes back to the 1960s experience of post-colonial countries, where actually, they, how can you have an entire village having a cooperative farm? I mean, think of the Tanzania experiment of Ujama, um, you have in India, I've been reading in Punjab, they said let the whole farm come to, whole village come together. We didn't know enough about collective action then. We know much more, and I think the self-help group model has really provided an alternative way of thinking about it, which, which also, you know, deals with Olson's theory of collective action, small groups matter, much more, more likely to be able to cooperate. So I'm hoping that uh, this would be an alternative. Uh, it's too early. Uh, I'm hoping that these results, which are, which are just off the press, if you like, um, could become a mechanism by which one could uh, talk about it. So just as a small thing which might appeal to you, Kerala had huge floods recently, entirely. All these farms had disappeared. So I wrote a piece in the Indian Express saying, um, just sharing these results and saying, uh, we need to see how they are going to fare after this. Uh, and, and really saying that, look, government has to think of how to revive this back. And I got a feedback from the state administration saying, your article is so useful for us that we will attach it to the loans that the Kudumshri women uh, doing group farming will make now, because it actually shows that they can be so productive. So, um, so it's very early days. And uh, I think there's a lot of resistance. But the Kerala example, I think, is because it's statewide. Um, uh, provides a basis for making that argument. The, um, the, the pillar structure, the three pillars, there is a state poverty eradication program, which is state government. The, the village council, which is the Panchayati Raj institutions, is the third pillar. The middle pillar is really the neighborhood groups, which are saving and credit groups at the village level village council and village level, then you have the slightly higher level, of, uh, and then the third is at the village council level, which is the CTS. Now, they are elected, there are people's representatives elected, and each of them, in each, I mean, there are dozens and dozens of them, each is a separate registered body. And they are then negotiate with the state government and with the 
the panchayats. So for instance, if you need agriculture universities to provide them training, if there's a lot of cooperation going on. The actually officers seconded from the first pillar to the second pillar as well to help. Um, uh, I'm going backwards. Tenure arrangements before group farms. Um, I, I don't have a sense of the entire state um, in terms of, uh, and partly it's very difficult in terms of the data because you, um, uh, uh, leasing is not, is banned in Kerala. It's partly allowed in Telangana. So it's not open leasing. So you don't have a really good picture. But an interesting question which could arise from what you said was if, if you're, so many numbers enter the land lease market, will the prices go up? I mean, that's the obvious question that an economist would ask, for instance. And um, I think what's helping in both states, but particularly in Kerala, is that because some of the men have other occupations, except in the paddy areas, where they don't want to lease out their land easily, um, that helps because there is land, and they, and uh, Kudumtri has become a brand name. So they are more able and willing to lease in land. And the social networks really help. So, um, uh, that's uh, all I can say right now. The most recent agricultural census has just been released, so I might be able to answer your question better once I've looked at the data. Um, the, this always comes up. Is Kerala different? Yes, it's different. It's, uh, it's uh, like every state is different, and Kerala is different because there's high levels of literacy, the social indicators are more positive, um, and so on. But remember, I'm not comparing Kerala women with Telangana women in terms of productivity. I'm comparing group farms in Kerala with individual farms in Kerala. So that's what you have to see, that they are, uh, you know, the other comparison wouldn't be viable, really. Um, education obviously will help, because you absorb training more. So that's without doubt, um, would, would, be a, would be a way to go. But interestingly, the Telangana women, there were 30, the level of illiteracy was much lower among uh, the group farms the members of the group farms and the individual farms. So they had some advantage. They had an advantage of farm size. But that was not enough to overcome the, the other aspects of disadvantage. Yeah. Uh, yes, at the back. I, I want to ask, so I'm doing a uh, study for a class on a program. Give me your names and uh, very just for me to get to know where the question is coming from. What's your name and what's your discipline? Oh, Anna. And I'm a second year master's of public policy. Okay. Um, and so what I'm looking at for that is this program that looked at kind of empowerment within the household on kind of household decision-making questions to see if kind of, if women having more power within their relationships kind of impacts their ability to be productive in farming in terms of they're able to negotiate with their husbands for their support or access to resources or kind of decision making over how income okay. is eventually spent. So I'm wondering kind of in your study if you saw any effects either of sort of economic empowerment on women's empowerment in the household or vice versa if you saw an impact of like household relationships on kind of women's ability yes. to be productive okay. in the group. Market. Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that. Then then Bindi and then so, so I had a related question in the sense that, you know, in agricultural societies, one of the constraints people have is that uh, even though they work in agriculture, a lot of the income they produce, they don't have to create. The husband or the partner receives the income. So to what extent 
income once you divide it among 22 plus women. But the Kerala case is interesting because that does give you something substantial to look at. And it does make a difference. Um, the empowerment question is linked that, yes, there was, uh, they do talk about it. I, there's little time, but there's another separate paper which looks at social and political empowerment. And one of the questions I raised, you haven't asked it, but it's a worthy question to ask, uh, which is that how is it different? Suppose everybody who does social empowerment um, will say, you know, it may have political empowerment implications. What is special about economic empowerment? So I address that proactively. Um, and the, so here's my take on it, that uh, the, um, in economic empowerment, the range of institutions with which you deal is much larger than if you're a group which is just doing um, agitations against, say, domestic violence or, or, or something else. And that has implications both for how the community looks at you uh, and how political actors look at you, parties. Because now you know the bank officers, you've gone out, and you, the, there are a very wide range of people that you're in, in, in touch with. So I think um, uh, if you didn't ask that question, never mind. Anyway, I did answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so who takes the income bill? Yeah, I've already answered. The uh, Foster and Rosenweig have two papers. One is a 211 paper, which is basically an all India representative sample, NCAR uh, sample, in which they, um, they show that um, the very small farms, as you increase, it increases profits by something like 13 to 1400 rupees uh, for every acre. And for me, those are the results which are really important, because what you're talking about is very small farms and how far they go. I mean, who has 10, what proportion have 10 hectare farms anyway? The second paper looks at a slightly different set of issues, which is really about, which is just this, I heard it presented in June, just out. Um, and that paper is based on ICRISAT data. So just last night I wrote to Foster saying why are result different, and he answered me this morning, so, so they are fresh <laughs> on my email. Um, is that uh, they, uh, that data is slightly different. And they are looking for optimal farm size. So there, um, you have a different U-shape. And they're looking at machine machinery and so on. And they're not looking at the entire um, annual output. They're looking at Kharif. So he suggests, so I asked him, look, isn't the 2011 the more relevant one? And he agreed. So, so I can say that to you. OK. Um, but both papers are there if you're interested. Um, uh, I don't, uh, no, I think if you have a situation of surplus labor, uh, you look at uh, land is a scarce resource, you look at uh, land productivity. Um, the labor productivity is important, but uh, uh, in this instance, I, you know, I think land productivity is really more important. Um, um, there could be differences. As you have scarcities in the labor market, we might go in that direction. If you go to France, for instance, that's what they're mentioning. Oh, OK. Um, We'll talk about it later on your panel data stuff. Um, and finally, on the Philippines, um, you know, uh, there aren't, these groups are all women's groups. That's how the sample was. There are men's groups, all men's groups coming up. What's very interesting is that I've written a 2010 paper, which was conceptualized, and uh, a group of people who were experimenting in India and Nepal read it. And they wrote to me last year saying that, you know, we were we've actually doing this experiment, will you visit us? And, uh, and I did. 
so it's in West Bengal, Bihar, and Nepal. And they were experimenting with mixed groups, and it, um, and it wasn't really working that well. Plus, you had landless women with six men. I said, you can't have one landless woman with six men. She's not even being, going to even be able to speak. Um, and so they've, they've, it's an experiment in progress, if you like, with inputs from as well. So um, uh, in that paper, we'll look at the range of possibilities and what works. Could answer that question. OK. Yes. Yes, and there was one here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I'm so happy that I actually attended this because I'm from South uh, India, Bangalore, and I come from a farming background. So okay. whatever you mentioned, I can so completely connect to it, <laughs> and um, and I feel uh, this is really reflecting what it is. And I'm, uh, it's like awesome that uh, many women uh, are coming together to do this. I see this quite a lot, even in the microfinance, which uh, I think everybody knows by now that microfinance is like a big stuff back in India right now. So just two questions. Um, uh, are there more states where you see this trend, or is it just down south? Uh, second thing, um, is government doing anything about this? Because I'm, I'm sure government already knows that this what is really, uh, uh, you know, uh, they see this trend quite, quite a lot in, uh, in India. So are they doing uh, certain things? You see, there are governments and governments. We have a federated structure. Every state government is different. Uh, in what it experiments with. Um, the, the Andhra study, um, mine was the first and last of it, uh, because the state was split into two, and I don't know if any of these groups, the APMSS was also um, a disbanded, more or less. Um, so other states, uh, you know, I've done a workshop with 20 NGOs across India just in August to discuss this. Uh, you have examples of one or two cases here and there. There's an interest, and I think civil society really needs to, it's, you know, that intervention is, um, is more likely. Um, if that emerges, then you might be able to influence the state government within which they are located. I don't see the government, uh, government if you read reports in Maharashtra, they'll say, well, we should have group farming. But what that means is not really clear. And how important it is to do it carefully, because you're, you can't just play with people's lives and say, well, let's have these experiments. So you have to be, it has to be very carefully structured. And I think that's a, that's a fair one. But I hope, as I said, that this is, um, this, let's see in another year's time whether there's some more influence as these results are disseminated. Um, yes. Down the middle question, uh, who 
you had asked that. No, you just asked. Political bias. Yeah, political. You see, uh, the, as I said, uh, the um, uh, the at the political level, at the panchayat level, um, many more women are standing for elections, and they are being there's a demand for them to be candidates in 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 in, in, in local elections. There's a larger question about um, the. It links with the institutional structure. How did this come about? How were these three pillars created? I have not talked about it. it is, I actually elaborated in another paper. But there were, there were three people, the Isaac Thomas, who was um, heading the People's Plan campaign. He's currently the finance minister of Kerala. There was Vijay Anand, who was rural uh, development secretary. Uh, and there was um, Bakshi, who was Nabad head. These three men in interaction with intellectuals and others, um, you know, uh, came up with this idea of structure. Every element was discussed. Should we have all women's groups? Should we have heterogeneous groups? And um, because I asked them these questions in detail, um, I realized and it came out that they were, they, it had been carefully thought through. None of this was arrived at by, um, you know, let's just go with it. And that's very interesting. Because if you proactively choose something, you can also then think, rethink it if, it's, if, it, if it goes goes wrong. Um, so the larger political thing matters, of course, the um, in whether you're able to experiment or not. So yeah. would you say it was driven by bureaucrats? No, no. The initial ideas. See, there's 10% uh, budget for um, for women's uh, women's projects in the panchayat in Kerala. Nowhere, no other state, as far as I know, has it. And um, what they were thinking about, I was I talked to many of the first executive directors of Kudum Shri, um, Sharda Muridharan, for instance, and she said we were thinking of what are the ideas, what should we bring as projects, and what they did was they they heard about rural women, and the women said well we are experimenting this can't we experiment can't you support us with this, so the openness to bottom up ideas I think that's what's really important and that was because of the they didn't just create it, but they absorbed and they interacted. I think that's very important. The issue of conflict between the women, um, there are, you know, the caste issue was the most important because in the Telangana case, they were all scheduled caste, more or less, predominantly, in, in Kerala. So um, they, what they did was, you can have six women. So you have uh, hold a meeting, weekly meeting, in different women's houses. Those of you who don't know, in the scheduled caste is seen as the line of untouchability. So uh, upper caste woman will not will think that if I take tea in a scheduled caste woman's house, I'll be polluting. So how do you get over that mental barrier? And some women did object. So they were told that, okay, fine, leave the group. It can be reconstituted. People didn't want to leave the group. But also, the, uh, Marty, you will know, the Self-Employed Women's Association has proactively grappled with this as well. And they find that the caste differences do settle down much more easily from what Renana to um, among women than they might um, with men. But I, uh, this is a, uh, my understanding from their field experience. So I think um, I've answered. Have I answered? Yes, we're at the end of our hour. Thank you yeah. so much yeah. for. Yeah.